0: You can open your Bibles to Luke 9, Luke chapter 9, our passage this morning is Luke 9, 18 through 26. We're in a series called Foundations and Pillars, and what we're doing in this sermon series is we are thinking about what it means to be a gospel-centered church, that is a church that is founded on and formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we say gospel, this is what we're talking about. This is what the gospel is. The gospel is God's good news of salvation for sinners through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's God's good news of salvation for sinners through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And for the last two weeks, we have been taking this definition, we've been been examining the foundational elements of the gospel. What are our foundations as a church? What are the foundational elements of what we believe? And first, a few weeks ago, we saw that the gospel is its a message from God. It's all about God. And we saw that God is glorious. We serve a God of glory. The God of the Bible is the one true God. He created all things. He has always existed. He is absolutely worthy of all worship from all peoples, tribes, nations, languages. He is worthy of worship because He is so glorious. He is a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining His love to thousands, forgiving sin, and at the same time, He is a holy God, a just God, a righteous God, This is who our God is. He is glorious. He is worthy of our worship. This is the first foundation of the gospel. It's who God is, a God of glory. But last week we saw the second foundation, that though this God is glorious and worthy of worship, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We saw last week in Romans that we have exchanged the glory of God for idols in our hearts and our lives. We we, we have taken this amazing glory of the Creator God, and we have said we don't want to worship you. We want to worship created things. We want to worship shadows instead of the real thing. And we have disobeyed His law. We have disobeyed His commands. And church, this is bad news for us. This is bad news because it means that we are guilty It means that we face judgment for our sins and it means that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Our good works could never make up for our bad works. We we are guilty before the God who says, by no means will I clear the guilty. We need salvation. And you know what, church? This could have been the end of the story. We We need to realize that, that this could have been Where the story ended is is, is that we could have sinned against this glorious God and in His righteousness and in His holiness and in His justice, He could have looked upon us and our sin and pronounced us guilty and, and sentenced us to our punishment of condemnation eternally before. He could have done that and God would have been righteous to do that. Just like any judge When a guilty party comes before him and it is clear that they are guilty, sentences that person to their punishment, God could have done that and been totally righteous, totally worthy of praise, just as glorious. But God did not do that. God did not do that because he is a God who says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God has said in His Word that He does not desire that any should perish. He says He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. God is a God who looks at rebellion and sin against Him, and instead of judging it, moves toward those rebels and makes a way for them to be saved. This leads us to our third gospel foundation. Because God, God does not just say, when we sin against him, oh, it's okay, I forgive you. Because again, that, that would not be just, that would not be righteous, that would not be holy. Just, just like we don't, we're don't, we not going to go into a courtroom and, and expect a judge to say, guess what, it's forgiveness day today. Anyone who comes in, forgiveness is the answer. And, and we, would, we would hear that and see that and we would say, that, that's not just, that's not good, that's not right. God, God does not pronounce forgiveness day. And just say, all, all sins brushed under the rug, don't worry about it, do over, mulligan. No, God doesn't do that. Yet He makes a way by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. The good news that God brings to guilty sinners in the gospel is that salvation is available in and only in Jesus And so because we need salvation, and because salvation has been made available to us in Jesus, this morning we're going to answer three questions about Jesus and this salvation. We're looking at the person and work of Christ today, and we're going to ask these questions. Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? And what will Jesus do? Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? And what will Jesus do? So read with me in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 Through 26. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Who is Jesus? If you think about it, ever since Jesus walked this earth, this has been one of the central questions in human history. I don't think that that's going to be the case when my life is over. I don't think people are going to be asking thousands of years from now, who is Phil Moser? Jesus his life demanded an explanation. It demands an explanation. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? People are asking it during His earthly ministry, and people are still asking it today, because there has never been anyone like Jesus. He, he healed the sick, and He didn't just heal one or two people. He healed everyone who came to Him. When He encountered someone who was possessed by demons... The demons fled from him. Multiple times, he fed thousands of people with a single lunch. He even was raising the dead back to life. And and it begged the question who is this? Who is among us in Jesus? Who is this man who touches leprosy and makes it go away? Who is this man who heals the sick with just a word from miles away? Who is this man who calls the dead back to life? Who is Jesus? In verse 18 of our passage, Jesus poses this question to his disciples. He had sent them out at the beginning of chapter 9. We see that he sends out the disciples to the villages, and they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching Jesus, and he says, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? What what were the crowds saying about Jesus? Well, you'll see a common thread here. Some said he was John the Baptist. Now, now John was a modern-day prophet in Israel. God had sent him, as we know, to prepare the way for Jesus. But John had been beheaded by Herod, and apparently some people believed that, that maybe he wasn't beheaded, or maybe he has, some, somehow God has sent him back in this person now named Jesus. But he's John the Baptist. Others thought he was Elijah. God promised the very end of the Old Testament Scriptures. God promised to send Elijah before the day of judgment, before the day of the Lord. And, and, they, and they thought, this this must be Elijah. God, God is about to return. This must be Elijah. Others, they really didn't know. They said, he, he must be a prophet of old, that, that God has somehow risen back to come to us. Maybe he's Moses, maybe he's Samuel, maybe, maybe he's Isaiah. Well, The common thread is that Jesus was a prophet. And he, he, he was a prophet that was so powerful that, that, that there was this sense that he, he must be Someone that that is may, maybe come back from from before that God has sent back this this, this is significant. Something about him is significant. He, he's a prophet, though. He he is endowed by God with power to do all these miracles, and he's he's teaching with authority, calling people to repent. He, he's a prophet. He's one of God's prophets. Now, of course, Jesus was a prophet. In fact, we we could say we should say he he is the preeminent prophet of all the prophets. He spoke with authority from God, and people knew it about him. But, but, you know, this explanation of Jesus doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Think about the prophets of the Old Testament. What what did the prophets do? The prophets called Israel back to God. The, The prophets said, return to the Lord. And Jesus called people to repent, but then he would come and he would say things like this. He would say, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. What prophet in the Old Testament ever said, Come to me? You think of one? No, no, prophets never said, Come to me. They said, Thus saith the Lord, return to the Lord. They, they, they were just the spokesman, but Jesus says, Come to me, follow me. You know, the prophets called people back to the law of God. They called them back to obedience. But Jesus comes and he says, I am the fulfillment of the law. He says that the law is all about me and I am the one who fulfills it. Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus granted people forgiveness of their sins. Jesus understood himself to be much more than a prophet. He understood himself to be the one that the prophets pointed to. You know, the crowds today, in our day and age, still explain Jesus this way. This is still the explanation. His life demands an explanation, and what people say is Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a good moral example. Jesus taught us to love each other. He was a good teacher. He was a prophet. He was a prophet. There are even other religions that want to claim Jesus as one of their prophets. But this will not do. It does not take into account what he actually taught. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says, I'm a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And then he says this, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So so right now, let's listen to C.S. Lewis. Let's let's understand that we are not going to just say Jesus was just a prophet. He was a prophet, but he's much more than a prophet. To say that about him is, is to just ignore all the things he said about himself. Jesus claimed to be much more Than a prophet, and he showed himself to be much more than a prophet. And the disciples knew this. The disciples had been around him, they knew his teaching, they knew his miracles, and they knew he was more than a prophet. So he turns to them and he says, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And and church, this is the question that each of us is asked this morning Who do you say that Jesus is? On behalf of the disciples, Peter answers, the Christ of God. What did Peter mean when he said this? When he, when he said to Jesus, you are the Christ of God, what did Peter mean? You know, for us, we, we just associate the word Christ with Jesus so much that, it's, of course, he's the Christ. He's Jesus Christ. But, of course, that wasn't the case for Peter Jesus was a common name. Jesus was a man with them. And and the Christ was a figure in the Old Testament that God had promised to His people. God had promised to send a son of David who would reign on the throne of Israel forever, establish Israel's kingdom forever, judge God's enemies, save God's people. This was the Christ. This was the promise that God had made of the Messiah. And and so what Peter is saying is, to Jesus is you are the Messiah God has promised to us. We believe you are the promised son of David who's going to judge our enemies and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. We believe you are the Savior King we have been waiting for. You are our Savior King. You are the Christ of God. Now, of course, when he says you are the Savior King, he's envisioning a salvation from physical enemies. He's he's envisioning a salvation from Rome. He's envisioning a salvation in which Israel is secure in the land and the kingdom of Israel is established forever with no more enemies. He's he's envisioning this political reality that Jesus is the Savior. That's, that's, That's what they're anticipating Him to do. Now notice in verse 21 how Jesus responds. And He strictly charged them to tell this to no one. In other words, Jesus says that is Who I am, and don't tell anybody. He understood himself to be the Messiah of Israel. Jesus understood himself to be the Christ. He accepted the notion that he was the promised Savior King. But during his public ministry, Jesus did not identify himself as the Christ. He didn't come out and tell Israel, it's me, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one God promised. Now, we'll look a little bit later at the reason he didn't do this. It was because the expectations they had of the Messiah were so different than the kind of Messiah he was going to be. And because of this, Jesus actually used a different title for himself. And as we're asking, who is Jesus? It's helpful to look at this final title. See, in verse 22, Jesus referred to himself not as the Christ, but as the Son of Man. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of Man. This title is the primary way Jesus referred to himself in his public ministry. He he, he continually referred to himself as the Son of Man. And and the reason he does this becomes clear throughout the New Testament. As as Jesus accomplished his work, people understood, the apostles understood what this meant. Jesus, in calling himself the Son of Man, he was getting beyond his office, which was to be the Christ, to his very nature, who he is. Himself is. Now, there were two uses of this phrase, Son of Man, in the Old Testament, and Jesus applies both to Himself. On the one hand, the title Son of Man was was simply a way to affirm that Jesus was indeed a man. Jesus was fully human. He was born. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He needed sleep. If you cut Him, He would bleed. He was as human as you and me. He was a son of man. But on the other hand, Jesus used son of man to refer not just to his humanity, but but in a veiled way to refer to his deity. He was referencing passages like Daniel 7, where in Daniel 7, Daniel says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So Jesus was teaching that he was this glorious Son of Man. He was teaching that he was the one who would receive glory and whom all nations would bow down to and serve. He, he's distinct from God. He, he, you see in that Daniel passage, he is presented to the Ancient of Days as God, yet he receives glory from God, and he is, he is worshipped alongside of God. By saying he's the Son of Man, Jesus is preparing the way for us to understand that he is the Son of God. This divine glory was veiled during his public ministry, but after his resurrection, the apostles' testimony was clear. Who is Jesus? This is what they said after his resurrection. Jesus is the Christ. But more than that, Jesus is the Lord. Yahweh, the God of Exodus 34, who revealed himself to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God. That's Jesus. He's the Son of God, worthy of all glory. So so who is Jesus? What's the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus. And and to take all that and to condense it as much as we possibly can, this is what we read in the New Testament. Jesus is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. He is the Savior King and He is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah and He is God in the flesh. This is who Jesus is. Now this takes us back to the question, if this is who Jesus is, why didn't he make that known during his public ministry? Why did he say, don't tell anybody about this? And it's because of the work he came to do. So this leads us to our second question, what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? And of course, we're reading this from the vantage point of Jesus predicting what he would do Today, and as we look back, we see that he has accomplished these things. In verse 22, he says, here's what he needed to do. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here, Jesus explains to his disciples what he must do as the Savior King. What he must do as the Christ. He must suffer many things. He must be rejected and be killed. And he must rise again on the third day. This is the work of Christ. And we look back now and we see Jesus has done these things. So, first, Jesus suffered many things. And I think it's interesting that Jesus separates his suffering of many things from his death itself. And I think that's important for us to realize that Jesus had to suffer many things. Why couldn't Jesus have just lived a nice, comfortable life and then die on a cross? you ever thought about that? Why Why could he not have had a place to lay his head? Why could he not have had ease during his life, just had a normal life, and then died on the cross? Jesus' death was preceded by every form of suffering that we could ever experience in this life. The Bible says that he experienced the full reality of what it means to be human in this fallen world. Think about it. He he experienced not just the physical suffering that happened in his trial and the cross, but he experienced the emotional suffering of having a friend betray him. He experienced the suffering of agony in the garden, awaiting death, crying out to the Father for a way. Uh, He experienced the the spiritual suffering of separation from his Father. Jesus suffered in every way we could imagine. And here's what the book of Hebrews tells us about this suffering. It says that although Jesus was, was a son, although he was the Son of God, he had to learn obedience through what he suffered and be made perfect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest for us. Now, here's what that's saying. Not that Jesus was not perfect, not that he was not sinless, not that he was not in himself as the Son of God, completely pure and righteous and holy, but that he had not experienced what it meant to be a man. And if he was going to stand in our place at the cross, then Jesus needed to stand in our place with a record of righteousness to take to that cross. And that righteousness could not be the righteousness of an easy life with no testing, but it was the righteousness of a life that was tempted in every single way as we are, yet without sin. And and so Jesus suffered in every way, but never sinned in that suffering. We sin when we suffer, we doubt who God is. We we look to other gods. We turn away from God. And we, we try to find a way out. But Jesus suffered more than any of us have ever suffered, more than any of us ever will suffer. He experienced it more than we ever will. And he was righteous at the end of it. And so he brings that righteous record to the cross as our high priest who is about to offer himself as the lamb. So so, so what this is really saying, as he says he has to suffer many things, Jesus is saying, I have to live the life that you have not lived. I need to live the life you have not lived. He says, I also need to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and then I need to be killed. We see in the second and third description of what must happen, we see two guilty parties we see that he must be rejected by his own people, the Jews. And he must be killed, as we know, by the Romans, by the Gentiles, by the world. And just like we saw last week in Romans 1-3, through both Jews and Greeks are under sin. The whole world is guilty before God. And Jesus, in going to the cross, needed to be rejected by both his own people and killed by the Gentiles to show that all are guilty, that all need him, and that he was a substitute for all people. So so Jesus needed to be rejected and killed because he was the substitute for all people who were culpable in that. And and we freely confess that if we were there, we would have been the ones who rejected him. We would have been the ones who shouted, crucify him. We, We are guilty. And Jesus had to be rejected and killed A savior king who had to be killed. Why? Because in his grace, Jesus was making a way to be part of his kingdom. Think about it. He's he's the king. He's he's going to establish the kingdom of God. But who's going to be in his kingdom? No, No one sinful can be part of that kingdom. No one unholy can be part of that kingdom. Jesus is making a way into the kingdom of God by dying for those He will be part of that kingdom someday. He is dying for their sins. He is offering himself as a sacrifice, a substitute for our guilt. We said at the beginning that we are guilty in sin. Judgment is coming, but Jesus took that judgment. That, that, That is the saving work that he came to do. That's the kind of Messiah he is. A Messiah who hangs on a tree in place of those who have rebelled against him. And so he lived the life that we did not live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. That's what Jesus must do. And then he says, and on the third day I must be raised. You know, Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. Didn't he? He said, it is finished. And what he meant when he said, it is finished, is he meant that sin has been paid for in full. Wrath has been absorbed in full. There is no more sin to be paid for. There is no more judgment to absorb. The the work is done. It is accomplished. I have done all that needs to be done for forgiveness to be given in a just and holy way. It's finished. If it was finished, then why did he need to rise again? Well, his resurrection is what proves that it really was finished. Think about it. I could come up here and, and I, could, I could die for you and I could say it is finished. But if I don't rise again, then there's no reason to think that I did anything. There's no reason to think that someone who claimed to be the Savior and claimed to die for your sins but then didn't rise again, that they were telling the truth at all. But in raising Jesus from the dead, Jesus is saying that when He said it's finished, it really was finished. He really did pay for sin. Wrath really was absorbed. Forgiveness really is available in Jesus. This is why we celebrate the resurrection. is because it shows us that Jesus really did pay the price for our sins. Jesus really has accomplished the salvation we so desperately need. There really is a way to be removed from our guilt, and we know it's true because He has risen from the dead. He lived the life that we did not live. He died the death we deserve to die, and He defeated the enemy that we could never defeat. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated hell. He defeated the curse in His resurrection. This is what Jesus has done. The Savior, Cain, the Son of God, has come and lived the life we didn't live, died the death we deserve to die, defeat the enemy that we could never defeat. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. This is why we celebrate today. And it leads us to our third question, what will Jesus do? What will Jesus do? Read with me again in verses 23 through 26. And he said to all, What will Jesus do? Here's what he says. He says that he will save all who come after him, and he will judge all who reject him. This is what Jesus will do. He will save all who come after him, he will judge all who reject him. He holds out two options in this passage. Come after him or turn the other way. And with both of these options, he doesn't just lay that out there and say nothing else. He gives reasons. He gives motivations. You see in this passage, verse 24, for whoever saves his life. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man? Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me. He's giving reasons to us to do what he says he's urging us to come after him. He's, he's, he's beckoning us to respond the right way here. And what he, what he does is he, he gives the cost and the reward of coming after him. First, he, he he says, first the cost. To come after Jesus, what, what is the cost? You must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow Him. And church, I want us to recognize this morning that He says, take up your cross daily. And so if you've been a believer for some time, if there was a point in your life when you did this, you, you denied yourself and took up your cross to follow Jesus, you need to recognize that is an ongoing call in your life. Every day of your life, Jesus calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him. He's calling us to lose our lives for His sake. Think, think about what He's saying. He says, deny yourself. That, essentially, saying, say no to yourself. When, when, when your heart wants to run after sin, when your heart wants to run its own way, you you say to your heart, no, you're, you're not the king anymore. Jesus is the king now. I'm going to deny myself and then I'm going to take up my cross. And we are so familiar with this image, but let's try to remember what picture he is painting for these disciples. He is calling them to take up this instrument that was used for the Official execution of the worst kind of criminals, and they would, they would take up their cross, usually after being beaten with a bloody back, weak, naked, stripped, ashamed. They would take up their cross and carry it to the place where they would be hung up to die. And Jesus says, You do that every single day of your life. Take up your cross. Go to die every single day. And follow me. Follow me. Listen to my words. Do what I say. Live the kind of life I live. Go where I go. I am the king of your life now. You are not anymore. This is what it is. It's a changing of allegiance from you being king to him being king. And it's a putting to death of the old you so that now you can live with Jesus in you, following him. It's a losing your life every day. This is the cost. You lose your life in this world. But here's the reward. If you come after Jesus in this way, Jesus says you will save your life for all of eternity. You will save your life. You you, you will have life for all of eternity. It will be life with him for all of eternity. And so he paints this picture that right now we, we have this short lifespan and you can either keep it or not, but if you lose it, even though you won't, you won't be able to control your life in this time, you won't be able to make your own decisions, do your own thing, have your own way, you're going to save your life for all of eternity if you do that. This is the cost and reward of following Jesus. But then what he does is he gives both the reward and the cost of rejecting Jesus. So when it comes to rejecting him, here's what he says He says, If you reject me, here's the reward. You could gain the whole world. You could gain the whole world. If you reject me, you can live the life you want to live. You can do what you want to do. You can say yes to every desire that comes your way. You can gain the whole world if you want to. It's all, it's all here for you if, if, if you reject me. That, that's your reward. But you need to know that a day is coming when you can't take any of it with you or you will leave it all behind. Whatever you gained will stay here, and you will lose your life for all of eternity. It's the cost of rejecting Jesus. You may have the best life you could ever dream of for 30, 40, 50 years, but you will lose everything you gain, and you'll be judged He says that he's going to come back not in humility but in glory. The Son of Man will come again in glory and he will be ashamed of those who were ashamed of him. He will judge those who rejected him. This is what Jesus is laying out and it's what led Jim Elliott, the missionary who gave his life on the mission field to try to take the gospel to people who didn't know Jesus. This is what led him to write, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can try our very best to make this life all it could possibly be, but we can't keep any of it. And how foolish is it of us to try so hard to accumulate as much as we can in this life here and now, only to lose it all, when we could lose our lives now and gain Christ for all of eternity. This brings us to the main idea of this morning's sermon. This is for us to think about, for us to reflect on, for us to respond to. If Jesus is who he says he is, and if Jesus has done what he said he would do, then Jesus is worth losing everything for. If he is who he says he is, and if he's done what he said he would do, then he is worth it all. And Jesus is who He says He is. Jesus is the Son of God who lived in eternity past, who humbled Himself and took on flesh and lived a life of suffering and died on a cross to be our Savior King. He has done what He said He would do. He paid for our sins and He rose again so that we can be forgiven and saved and have life with Him. This is who He is. This is what He's done I want you to look at Jesus and think about Jesus right now and recognize in that this is the glory of God. This is the grace of God. This is the love of God. This is the faithfulness of God. This is, this is who we get in Jesus. We get the greatest joy. Do you realize what Jesus said? He, he said in verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For my sake. So he doesn't just say whoever loses his life will save it. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And and this is what we need to recognize now, is that that Jesus as the Savior is not someone who comes and and saves you and walks away and lets you go do your own thing. When Jesus saves you, you come to recognize that he's the one I need. He's the one I want. He's he's the one that, that, that my life needs to be about. He's the joy. He's the one I'm saved to and you lose your life for His sake, what you want is not life generally forever. You want life with Jesus forever when you recognize who Jesus is and what He's done for you. And so this morning, on this Resurrection Sunday, when we celebrate that Jesus has risen again, He has paid for our sins, we can be forgiven and be saved and have eternal life. Let's recognize that this is not so that we can just have a a happy existence apart from Christ forever, but so that we can have life with Him forever. And let's lose our lives here now because we know that we'll be raised with Him again someday. We can lose our lives because He has promised us that we will get them back. We will be raised with Him. And so let's sing to Him this morning. Let's have the music team come and sing to Him and rejoice in the hope of the Gospel. If you do not know Jesus today, maybe you're a child who is in here that has gone to church your whole life. Maybe you're someone who has been around the church, been around Jesus, maybe confessed Jesus, but you realize this morning that you have not lost it all for His sake. Then as we sing call you to lose your life. Give it to Him. Surrender the kinship of your life to Jesus and say, thank you for saving me. I give it all to you. And you will know the joy that comes in Jesus. Let's just stand and sing together.